screen. And we'll have a word of prayer, then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time this evening when we can finish our study of the book of 2 Corinthians. We're thankful that uh, we have the privilege of living in a day and age where we have such ready access to the Word of God. Uh, but we know that puts us under greater accountability because to those who have, are given much, to whom much is given, much is going to be required. We're, we're facing greater responsibility for what we know. And so therefore help us, Lord, to uh, be able to think clearly and to uh, actively try to put into action and in our thinking, <clears throat> modify our thinking and, and calibrate our thinking according to your word as we understand it. Do pray for our friends, especially in the group here, Lori, for um, uh, and her continuing rehabilitation for Hugh Fairchild and his upcoming cancer surgery for Ed Martin and his um, upcoming test. We pray that uh, you will give healing to his body for anything that's going on there. And we just thank you for this time together. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so um, let me see here, start here. So last time we've been talking about, you know, Paul's apostolic authority, that's 10 through 13. And uh, Paul has been in chapter 11, sort of boasting or defending himself. He's, he's defending himself the whole time, but now he's defending himself by giving his credentials, his resume, we might say. And he doesn't really like that because he wants the glory to go to God and, and not to himself, even though he's had great accomplishments, even though, and he suffered much for the Lord. And when you, when you read about, when we read those statements about being beaten by rods and being beaten by Jews, the 39 stripes and the shipwrecks and all the things that happened to him. He's certainly suffered a great deal for the Lord in his mission to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So, you know, he has to, he mentions that, but he doesn't like it. So he calls it boasting as a fool would boast. And last time he was uh, talking about his personal heritage and sufferings, his heritage especially because the false teachers who had come into Corinth since he left, uh, and maybe since Titus has left, somehow he's gotten word when he sets down to start chapter 10 about, I think, a new development. And so he's heard more about these people who have come in, probably Jewish, uh, claim a Jewish heritage, claim to be like apostles, claim to have credential letters from Jerusalem, and uh, uh, disputing Paul's authority, disputing Paul's authority as an apostle to be, you know, commanding and teaching the Corinthians. And so Paul is dealing with that issue here. And in chapter 12, he has uh, discussed his revelations from the Lord, because these people are claiming apparently, that they're getting 
revelation. And Paul says, well, you know, <laughs> I can top that in a sense. I was actually caught up into heaven. You know, who wants to claim that? Well, of course, today, <laughs> a lot of people, I, I was going to be, I wasn't, I was going to be not nice and say a lot of stupid people, but a lot of deceived people, a lot of people who are ultimately, I mean, I, they, I assume some of them, you know, really believe this. They really believe they were in heaven and all this nonsense, but, um, but, uh, you know, some we wonder about, but Paul did. Paul was somehow caught up into heaven. He doesn't know whether it was in the body or out of the body. He doesn't really know. Uh, but he mentions that. But he says, you know, I could really boast about that. I could really glory in that. And to keep me from becoming conceited about these revelations, God gave me a thorn in the flesh, some physical thing to remind me, hey, Paul, <laughs> you're not as great as you think you are, you know, that he had to deal with apparently all his life because he asked the Lord to remove it. And the Lord said, no, no, Paul, this is my plan for you. And you'll have to endure this. This is best for you. Um, and my grace is sufficient. So Paul reveals that. Now Paul goes on in chapter 12, still dealing with this sort of boasting as a fool, uh, to talk about uh, the signs of an apostle. He says uh, in verse 11, I have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you. You would think so. After Paul established the church, and all of that. They owe their existence to one man, the Apostle Paul and his co-workers. You ought to be, have been commended by, by you, for I am not in the least inferior to the, quote, super apostles. The NIV puts that in quotation marks because that's really kind of what Paul is saying here. Even though I'm nothing. I say now that Paul's boasting as a fool is virtually over, Paul emphasizes that it had been by coercion. If it had been only his reputation at stake, Paul would have never boasted. But in this situation, it was his status as an apostle that was in question, and a result, as a result, the gospel itself. So as I said, Paul should have never had to defend himself in any way, but instead, you know, the Corinthians should have come to his defense when these false apostles were making these accusations. You know, if any Christian church was qualified to write Paul's, to testify to Paul's, you know, apostleship, it was the Corinthian church. But apparently they, wrote, they didn't say anything. They didn't come to his defense, and that forced Paul to speak up. Um, his actions here are excusable, having to, but theirs are not, obviously. And Paul now lists, I say, a couple of reasons why the Corinthians should have rallied to his defense. First, as they knew, well knew, he was not in the least inferior to the super apostles. Even though I'm nothing, those final words are Paul's denial of any personal merit that have might made him worthy of apostleship. You know, I'm not behind them, but even though I'm personally nothing, it's all a gift of God. Verse 12, I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle. 
What are those marks? Well, they include signs, wonders, and miracles. The second reason the Corinthians ought to have jumped to Paul's defense is that they observed in Paul's ministry the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. Now, these words, signs, wonders, and miracles, do not describe three types of miracles, but miracles in general considered from three aspects. So these are three words in the New Testament that are used to to refer to miracles, what we call miracles, uh, signs, wonders, and miracles. So w- the first word is signs. That's the ability to authenticate the message. So these miracles by Jesus were used by him to authenticate that he was who he said he was. And that was the purpose of the, the, the miracles that the apostles performed. Their main purpose was to authenticate purposes of the miracles that Moses did was to authenticate him as God's spokesman. So they were signs, they were wonders, that is, they evoked awe, and they were miracles, they displayed divine power, they were mighty deeds. If all Christians, I say, are capable of performing such deeds, as the charismatic movement kind of suggests, they sort of hint that, you know, many charismatics do, maybe not all, that, you know, we should all be doing, or this should be common, these miracles and wonders should be pretty common. It doesn't seem like they could serve as signs of anything. If everybody's doing them, they don't, they don't distinctively point to an apostle, unless we're all apostles or something. So uh, we don't, it doesn't appear that these miracles should be as, are not really very common. Uh, and since we don't have any apostles today, we don't have any sign necessary need for any signs, any authenticating miracles. There's no need to authenticate a spokesman. There are no spokesmen for God today. Did I say that right? There are no spokesmen. <laughs> I mean, there's only the word of God. That's what we have. That's sufficient, infallible, inerrant. And those of us who teach, like I'm doing now, are not spokesmen for God in the sense of the apostles. We're just trying to explain the word of God, that God has already spoken. So there's no authentication going on today. We authenticate what a preacher says by, is it true to the word of God? Does it match up with God's word? Paul says in verse 12, I persevered in demonstrating, I'm sorry, verse 13, uh, how were you inferior to other church, to the other churches, except that I was never a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Now here we have, as I say, total irony. Oh, forgive me this wrong, you know. So he's being very ironic here, very sarcastic, really, almost. Paul notes that in the the only respect in which The marks of a true apostle were not evident in the apostolic church of Corinth was that of support. Uh, He was never a financial burden to them. And, you know, this is, this is, you know, he calls it like an injustice for which he sarcastically pleads forgiveness. So this is similar to the argument we have in first Corinthians nine. I'll, come to that 
maybe a little, a little later here. I've got a slide on that. Uh, Paul has moved naturally from the consideration of his apostleship in verses 11 and 12, the truth of it, to now the issue of apostolic rights. Um, he's distinguishing between certain signs of apostles, signs, wonders, and miracles, and a particular right of apostleship. Namely, one of those rights of apostleship is to be supported from the church or churches being served. But Paul's point here is a church in which the signs of apostleship were displayed, like Corinth, you know, was not less apostolic because this optional right of an apostle being supported, this optional right of support, had been waived by him. Paul had not used this right, even though he could have. Well, we'll come back to that in just a second here. Paul's proposed third visit, uh, 1214 through 1310. This is the final section, except for the final few greetings at the end. So he promises on this third visit, he's not going to be burdensome. He says, now I'm ready to visit you for the third time. Uh, and I will not be a burden to you. Let's see if I got that. Yeah, there's that, right. Uh, and I will not be a burden to you because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for the parents, but parents for the children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? So regardless I say, of how upset the Corinthians may have been with Paul for his failure to accept you know, their financial support, he announces that his third visit to Corinth is imminent. I'm ready right now. And that his policy regarding support will not be altered. Uh, I will not be a burden to you. So they're going to have to continue to put up with this, you know, quote, injury <laughs> he's inflicting upon them, verse 13, you know. His affections was, were for the Corinthians themselves, not for what they owned, not what they could share with him. He, he craved their mutual love, as we've seen in chapter 6, places through the epistle. He wanted them to mature to be mature Christians. He want, wanted them to be devoted to Christ exclusively. That's what he wanted. I say here, Paul seeks to defend his refusal to accept support by appealing to the obvious truth that it is not the children's obligation to save up and provide for their parents, but only the parents for the children. Um, I say here, this principle, however, is not universally applicable. That is, generally, you know, when we have children, we don't expect the children to support the parents when they're growing up. We expect the parents to support the children. Um, 
so, um, you know, that's a general principle, but it's just a general principle, he says here. You know, generally in life, I'm the, I'm the parent and you're the children, and we don't really expect necessarily parents or children to support their parents as a general, as I say, it's not universal because Paul defended the right of apostles to be supported by their spiritual children. In this case, spiritual children, not literal children, but that's the point. He's trying to say, you know, uh, uh, I don't, you know, my not taking support from you is nothing particular odd about that in a sense, because uh, children don't usually support their parents. But on the other side of the issue, you know, we're talking, if we look at it in, in a literal sense, in an absolute sense, Paul defends the right of, uh, of uh, apostles to take support. Now, this is 1 Corinthians 9, where he really deals with this issue. You would think it would be settled by what he says in 1 Corinthians 9, but it, it's not because these apostles have come, false apostles have come in and said, listen, this Paul, he's no apostle. You know, apostles are always supported by those that he, they minister to. And so he says, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? He's talking about his apostleship. He says, this is my defense to those who sit in judgment. Do we not have the right to food and drink, or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? If we've sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap material harvest from you? If others have the right of this support, shouldn't we have it all the more? But See, there's the point. He says, okay, I do have this right. Clearly, I have this right. But we did not use this right, which means I didn't use. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get the food from it? He goes back to the argument. And those who serve at the altar is what the altar. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel but I haven't used any of these rights. And then he goes on to explain why he hasn't in the latter part of chapter nine. He says, though I have the right to be supported by you, I haven't used it because I don't want you to think that the gospel costs something. The gospel is the free is given the free grace of God. It's a free gift. And if I were to take money from you, you might think that it costs something to get into heaven as he will, you know, as he says in the latter part of that chapter. So Paul defended the right of apostles to be supported by the people that he was speaking to. And as he says here, um, um, uh, let's see can't think where he says it. <laughs> oh, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel receive their living from the gospel. Um, it's actually quoting from a passage in Luke there. Interesting. But anyway, uh, my point here is that this general statement that I'm just trying to <laughs> get to here that, uh, you know, children should not save up for the parents. That's true as a general principle, you know. So Paul says, I'm not 
I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm your parent, I'm your parent. And so I don't really expect to be supported though. I have the right. Um, and, you know, as Paul says, uh, you know, so it's not an absolute thing that children don't have any responsibility because Paul's, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than unbelievers. So, yeah. So children do have some responsibility as they grow up. When they grow up, they have responsibility to others in their family, which would be particularly their mother and father and so forth. <clears throat> um, so this was a principle that guided Paul's ministry, the, the fact that parents uh, generally don't take from the children. That's my general principle here. It's just a rationale of why he refused support, plus that rationale that I didn't read, but about the gospel. He wanted it to be uh, sown to be a free gift of God. I go on and say, Paul planned to use all of his own resources to achieve what was best for the Corinthians. He says, I will gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well, verse 15, he says. Nothing would be spared in his efforts to win their affection for Christ. All he has asked for in return was a fair exchange. Am I to be loved the less because I love you more, love you so intensely? So if Paul's love for the Corinthians exceeded the love of a father for his children, how could they love him less than a child, you know, children love their father? Verse 16, be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you. Yes, crafty fellow that I am. And we're back to irony here, you know. Yes, crafty fellow that I am. I caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent to you? I urged Titus to go to you and sent our brother with him. Titus did not exploit you, did he? Did we not walk in the same footsteps by the same spirit? <clears throat> so why were the Corinthians not willing to engage in this fair exchange of affection? Although Paul had not personally been a financial burden to the church, it would appear maybe that a rumor had circulated at Corinth based upon what he seems to say here, that Paul was unscrupulous by nature, crafty fellow that I am that somehow he was exploiting the church's generosity and maybe that he was secretly trying to gain through his agents, Titus and others, what he had declined to accept personally. What Paul probably has in mind here is the collection we talked about for the poor at Jerusalem, uh, which some charge maybe was a convenient way to fulfill his wish to live at the church's expense. You know, maybe Maybe Paul's, you know, maybe he, maybe his, uh, maybe his uh, opponents at Corinth, these false apostles, you know, Paul's, Paul's gathering this collection, but you know, he's he, he's going to take his share. He may take all of it, you know. How do you know it's, a, you know? So they were they were they were questioning Paul's uh, integrity here. Um. Now, the Corinthians should have known that this, all this was false, 
since Paul had insisted that the collection be made prior to his coming. Remember 1 Corinthians 16. Do what I told the Galatian churches on the first day of the week. Each one of you set aside a sum of money and keep it with your income. Saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. So Paul uh, had given clear instructions here uh, that the collection was to be made prior to his coming. He had also appointed the, uh, he had also uh, instructed the Corinthians to appoint their own representatives. So there won't be any hanky-panky shenanigans here. Uh, then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. And, you know, if you want me to, I'll go along. I don't have to go. They can accompany me if they want, but they don't have to. So, um, so the point is they know that Paul didn't exploit them through the men he sent to them, you know, verse 17. Um, and he says, you know, I urged Titus to go to you. I sent our brother with him. So, uh, there wasn't any conspiracy here to exploit them. In fact, they had been impressed with Titus. We read that in chapter seven. They loved him. They respected him. They had affection for him, 713 through 15. And so if Paul's representative was a man of integrity, which is what they seem to suggest, then the Corinthians should credit the same spirit to the apostle. Well, let's look at this. Misgivings about his upcoming visit. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ, and everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. Paul now turns to dispel any notion which might readily have occurred to any Corinthian who hears or reads this letter that he had all along been seeking to defend his conduct and reputation before a panel of Corinthian judges. <clears throat> it was God or to Christ, not to the Corinthians, that Paul was ultimately accountable. And he had reminded the Corinthians of this and remember 1 Corinthians 4. I care very little if I'm judged by you or any by a human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. You'll bring to light what's hidden. Each man, <laughs> each person will receive their praise from God. So, um, you know, Paul's rivals there, these false apostles, cared a great deal, obviously, about, as I say, what people thought. And so they shaped their preaching accordingly. Paul carefully on about what God's opinion was. He had been speaking as a man in Christ, whose words and motives were open before God. <coughs> Excuse me. His aim in all his relations uh, with the Corinthians, especially his, in his correspondence, was not personal vindication, as he said, but their edification for your strengthening, he says, in verse uh, 19. Verse 20, for I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be discord, <clears throat> jealousy, fits of rage, 
selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you. And I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. <clears throat> so this present letter may not be completely successful. And so Paul expresses in verse 20 through 21 a couple of fears. First, he fears that when he comes, it will not, he will not uh, find the church as he wants them to be. So at, at worst, he may find what he calls here, you know, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, um, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. And possibly, he says, impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery, verse 21. So I'll say, second, Paul fears that when he comes to Corinth, they will not find him as their liking either. You may not find me as you want me to be. Paul would like to come in gentleness, but if his worst fears are realized, he will have to come with a rod, as he mentions in 1 Corinthians 2.21, especially if he finds impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery uh, among those who have sinned earlier and have not repented. So he talks about, you know, he'll be humble. These kinds of continuing sins will cause God to, to quote, he quotes, humble Paul, probably in the sense that he'll be humiliated by the Corinthian sinful behavior. This continuing sin will cause Paul to be, he'll be grieved. He'll be humiliated by this. This would be terrible after all his work in Corinth to come and find this going on. I mean, this kind of moral corruption that Paul describes here, impurity, sexual sin, debauchery, uh, is rather startling to us when we read that, since nothing in the letter up to this point has prepared us for this. <clears throat> it may be that these problems were there all along, um, because we know Paul had to deal with some of these issues in 1 Corinthians. We certainly saw these kinds of things, sexual sin, debauchery, incest. We saw those things, you know, we saw a lot of sexual um, uh, sin in 1 Corinthians. So maybe they've all been there all along. I don't know whether the, the schismatic, uh, schismatic influence of the false teachers, false apostles, these things have erupted. Some, you know, this is startling kind of to, to read that here, but there it is. Uh, there it is. <clears throat> we come to a warning of discipline when he comes, chapter 13. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Not going to be any kind of nonsense about, oh, Paul said this. No, he didn't say this. Or somebody said, no, we're going to establish everything <laughs> in the testimony of two or three witnesses. You know, we're going to make tape recordings of all everything I say and, you know, everything you say. We're just going to get this down. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my turn, I will not return. I will not spare those who sinned earlier. 
or any of the others. Now remember what Paul is talking about, his third visit. And he's already mentioned the third visit earlier in chapter 12. I just didn't say anything about it there. <clears throat> but the first visit is Acts chapter 18, when Paul establishes the church. Remember, he goes to Corinth, he meets Aquila, Aquila and Priscilla. And there he establishes the church at Corinth, AD 50 to 52 approximately, in that time frame. Fall of AD 50, spring of AD 52. We know Paul was there in AD 51 because he goes before the proconsul Gallio. So we know pretty clearly when he was there. The second visit is not recorded in the book of Acts. That's that painful visit. And that's what he says, verse 2, I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. Remember, Paul made a visit over to Corinth that didn't go well. And so he comes back to Ephesus, and he writes the severe letter, sends it by Titus. Now he says, uh, this will be my third visit. And so uh, Paul is in Macedonia right now, Acts chapter 20 and verse, well, he's in Acts chapter 20, verse 1, verse chapter 19, he's at Ephesus, he leaves Ephesus. Acts chapter 20, verse 1, <clears throat> he leaves Ephesus, goes to Macedonia. And verse 2 and 3, finally, he arrives in Greece, that's Corinth, where he stayed three months. And there he writes the letter to the Romans. So this is Paul's third visit to Corinth. I say Paul will not be content to respond to the Corinthian sins with just shame and grief. Now he puts them on notice about his planned third visit. First, Paul quotes a well-known Old Testament passage to show that his dealings with the offenders at Corinth would be done with proper witnesses. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. His visits, his, his visits um, are witnesses against the Corinthians, and his coming third visit will be going to be a decisive one, you know. Uh, you know, his point is, I've given you warning, and punishment is imminent. <laughs> you know, I'm gonna, you know, I've tried to deal with you. I'm gonna, it's gonna be pretty tough if these things are not subtle. Second, Paul reminds them that this is their second warning. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time, the painful visit. I now repeat, repeat it while absent. As a result of sufficient warning, Paul will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. So these persons who sinned earlier are likely those immoral persons just mentioned back in verse 21, impurity, sexual sin, debauchery, slander, selfish, you know, 2021 particularly. Uh, those who did not repent, apparently during Paul's painful visit, and apparently we're still indulging in these sexual sins. Those who sinned earlier, that's what we're talking probably about. And then he says, any of the others, um, I will not spread those who sinned or, or any of the others. Any of the others are probably those Corinthians who had been adversely affected by the false apostles and were apparently, you know, creating problems in the church, unrest, uh, you know, 
disunity in the church. And so both groups here, you know, those who are committing these sins, those who are probably committing, doing unrest, creating unrest, discord, this is their final warning. <clears throat> and if they remain unrepentant, Paul says, you know, he's going to use, he's going to be harsh in his use of authority, you know. Um, verse three, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but powerful among you. We do not know what form the disciplinary action, disciplinary action Paul was threatening would take. Would it be public censure, excommunication, supernatural affliction of bodily suffering are all possible. Remember we talked about places in Paul's uh, in Acts, where he inflicted supernatural suffering, like on Bar Jesus in Acts chapter 13 with the proconsul Sergius Paulus. He was, he was deceiving Sergius Paulus, and Paul made him blind, walk around blind. So Paul is capable of this supernatural infliction of bodily suffering. And so Paul's going to show them that Christ is speaking through him. If they're looking for some miraculous display, they may get it, <laughs> though it may not be, you know, the way they are expecting. And it won't be Paul's power. It'll be Christ's power, Christ speaking uh, through Paul. He's not weak, he says, in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. Verse 4, to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. The Corinthians should not be fooled that Paul's gentle demeanor, as though by his gentleman, as though he operated out of weakness. The same mischaracterization was made of Christ to be sure he was crucified in weakness. The crucifixion showed that Christ was subject to physical death but he didn't remain in weakness. He lives by God's power. He was raised. So Christ's weakness, as shown in the crucifixion, was not the result of a lack of power. He died according to God's power. He died acting in God's power, I guess we could say. Paul is likewise, uh, is, is just like that, likewise, just like Christ in that sense. He says, likewise, we're not weak. Um. Paul was weak in him and that, you know, we talked about his life was a life of, of as a traveling missionary, was involved considerable frailty, hardships. But the same resurrection power by which Paul lives in his dealing with the Corinthians is going to be evident on his next visit to Corinth, he says. And so he issues, finally, a challenge to examine themselves. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. You know, your conduct, he says, you know, is so troublesome, so bad. <laughs> I have to wonder, this is the uh, Bill Combs paraphrase, I have to wonder if you folks are really regenerate, if you've been born again, <laughs> you know. Christians are capable of a lot of sinning, but, you know, how much <laughs> sinning? Test yourselves. 
do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you, unless, of course, you fail the test? And I trust that you'll discover we have not failed the test. So Paul now calls for the Corinthians to examine themselves and see whether they are in the faith. They are to test themselves in order to prove their worth or genuineness, the genuineness of their faith. They profess faith in Christ, but there are serious doubts about whether their lives match their profession. You know, a genuine faith should result in the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, Galatians 5.22. Instead, you know, what we've seen from them is evidence of quarreling, jealousy, outburst of anger, faction, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder, 12.20, and possibly impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery, 12.21. So in order to, as say here, uh, in order to conduct uh, such tests, of course, the Corinthians must possess the capability to recognize Christ's presence among them. Thus, Paul sarcastically says, or can you not even recognize that Jesus Christ is in your midst? It may have been that they've gotten so bad they can no longer have the ability to recognize the genuine effects of regeneration, as I said. They, they just lost it. And if that's true, they fail the test. Um, I mean, the truth is they were all professors of faith. We make a profession of faith. And uh, we can have assurance. We can know that we are saved by the promises that God gives us by the work of spirit in our lives and sanctification, changing us, you know, and by the fruit that comes from us from years of living the Christian life. Um, so uh, if you don't see those kinds of things, you know, it makes a person wonder about their Christianity. The, you know, the fact that they're demanding proof that Christ is speaking through Paul would suggest they're out of touch with the true workings of the Spirit. Now, maybe they're just totally deceived by these false teachers, and they can be corrected. And I think I'll just uh, jump ahead and give you the truth. I think they, they were, from what we can tell. We'll come to that in a second. But it's iffy right here, I certainly say, think. If they do examine themselves and discover that they have failed the test, then they should be able to discover that Paul is genuine. We have not failed the test. You know, only if they doubted their own salvation should they doubt Paul's claim to be a true apostle. If they don't fail the test, they, he can't fail the test because they got everything they got from him. Um. I was just looking at my text here because I was wanting to make sure you weren't texting me and telling me you couldn't hear me anymore, but I keep getting these texts. Department of Motor Vehicles, you're getting a six, $1,635 payment for each vehicle in your household. That's nice to know, isn't it? Boy, people keep sending me <clears throat> these kinds of things about all the money I'm getting. It's just amazing. 
Um, so verse uh, seven. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Not so that people will see that we have stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, even though we may have seemed to fail the test. So Paul's ultimate desire, however, is that the Corinthians will do what is right, even if it turns out that we may have failed the test. Of course, Paul has no doubts about himself, but he would con concede anything if the Corinthians would do the right thing. You know, he's not, he's not saying you have to uh, say I'm true and I'm genuine. As long as you are, as long as you do the right thing, then I'm fine with my situation. His desire and prayer to God was not for his vindication, not so people would see that he stood the test, um, but for avoidance, you know, of, of wrongdoing, really. Verse 8, for we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. This verse may have been a proverb that Paul adapted to the occasion. We cannot do anything against the truth, but for the truth. It's not kind of proverbial. In this context, it probably means that Paul's concern was that truth, especially the truth of the gospel, would prevail at all cost, even if it involved his exposure as a false apostle and a counterfeit Christian. We're only concerned about the truth, the proverb is saying. That's all that we're concerned about. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong, verse 9. And our prayer is that you may be fully restored. That's why I write these things when I'm absent. That when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority the Lord gave me, you know, primarily for building you up, not tearing you down. But I can, I can do some tearing down, he says. Paul concludes by restating that his goal at Corinth was to produce strength. We're glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. He would be happy if the Corinthians were strong in Christ since there was no occasion for him to use his apostolic you know, authority harshly. He doesn't want to do that. He would be able to come to them as he normally does you know, in his normal weakness, as he talks about. If 12, 20 through 21 expresses Paul's fears about what he might find at Corinth on his arrival, 1310 indicates his hope in this respect. Um, but even here, a veiled warning is registered. You know, while the, while the, the Lord... Uh, had not invested, you know, Paul with apostolic authority, primarily for the work of tearing down, as we said. You know, if, if tearing down was necessary in order to, uh, a, a, a prelude to, positive, to the positive task of construction, he would undertake this tearing down. And with the same authority. <clears throat> Was Paul's final visit to Corinth actually an unpleasant one? What actually happened? Well, remember I said that Paul 
went to Corinth, as we saw in Acts chapter 20, verses 2 and 3, <clears throat> after he writes this letter. He goes from Macedonia to Achaia to Corinth. And he writes the letter to the Romans. And here's what he writes to them. But now there is no more place for me to work in these regions. Paul had evangelized the eastern part of the Roman Empire. You say, well, not everybody was saved there, but he had gone to the major cities, established churches. Now it's up to those churches to do the further work. He's a pioneer missionary. And since I have been longing for many years to visit you in Rome, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. So he ultimately wants to go all the way to the furthest western part of the Roman Empire into Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. So Paul wants to go to, go to Rome and sort of have them be his base church to reach to go to the western part of the Roman Empire, sort of like Antioch was in the east, was the base for those three missionary journeys. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people, the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia, that's Corinth, were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them in the material blessings. So after I completed this task and made sure that they have received the contribution, I will go to Spain, visit you on the way. So I was here, though direct evidence is lacking, we have at least a couple of indications that it was successful. First, Paul would probably not have planned to visit Rome and to do pioneer evangelism in the West if the church in the city he was writing from was in a state of disorder and disloyalty. He seems to sort of say, I've finished my work here. So it seems like, you know, maybe from this, that things had settled down in Corinth. Second, it's clear from Romans 15, 26, 27, that the Corinthians heeded Paul's appeal in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and completed their collection for the saints of Jerusalem. So that's good. Twice notes that Paul, that they, they were pleased to contribute, which suggests the church was in harmony with the promoter of the collection. That's all we know, but that's a hint that maybe Paul was able to <clears throat> get things on the right track back at Corinth. Well, we come to the final greetings, including exhortations. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for a full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Paul closes with several general instructions. First is rejoice. You know, we often see that in his epistles. In addition, the Corinthian believers were to strive to achieve the full restoration of which Paul himself was praying back in verse 9. They were to encourage one another, be of one mind, what some have called a tall order for the Corinthian congregation, you know. If all the previous exhortations were carried out, then they would live in peace, and the God of love and peace would be with them. Then he has a greeting some greetings, greet one another with a holy kiss, all of God's people here, that is in the city of Corinth, send their greetings. <clears throat> Apparently the early church invested the kiss, a common form of salutation in the Orient, and still is in some countries, you know, kissing on the cheek and so forth. 
with a special and sacred significance. So that's a cultural custom in that part of the world. It was a express union and fellowship within one, the one family of God. The fact that it's called holy indicates that erotic overtones were excluded. God's people referred to may, here may be the Philippians. All God's people here, you know, the Thessalonians, the Bereans, but, you know, probably also the Macedonians. So it's, it's, um, it's everybody. He's writing from Macedonia here. So, it's, you know, probably the whole region there. Benediction 13, 14. <clears throat> and I think Pastor Ken sometimes reads this one on Sunday morning. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit with you all. Paul closes this letter with a wish for spiritual well-being, for the spiritual well-being of his readers. This benediction is unique in that it includes all three persons of the Trinity. Fellowship of the Holy Spirit is probably fellowship created by the Spirit. So, so it is an important verse. It's a benediction, but it's, it's a verse that shows the Trinity. You know, it shows the equality of the three persons. They're, they're put together in an, on an equal stance. It's not that the Father is greater than the Son or the Son is greater than the, the Spirit or something. No, all three are part of this benediction, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, that's the Father, fellowship of the Spirit. So all three, so that's very important uh, Trinitarian verse. It shows that the early church, we, we have a much more developed doctrine of the Trinity over the centuries. We've explored scripture and developed that, but here it is right here, very clearly stated. All right, that is the end of Second Corinthians, and you know it's eight o'clock. That's perfect timing, isn't it? How about that? <laughs> Let me stop this share.